This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's another edition of the Equalizer podcast. Dan Lawletta with Chelsea Bush, and the special guest today is Kelsey Trainer, and that can mean only one thing: legal news in the women's soccer world. We'll get to that momentarily. Real quickly, still really no news on the NWSL front. Officially, the training moratorium is in place until May 15th. And according to Lisa Baird, there will not be any soccer of any kind in that league until at least the end of June. We will see what happens going forward with that. But the big news in women's soccer this week, Friday, late Friday, uh, some summary judgment dropped in the case of the U.S. women's national team taking their bosses, U.S. soccer, to court for equal pay. We'll bring in Kelsey Trainer to discuss. Before we get to that, Kelsey, I haven't been on in a while. Just quickly, how have you been? I know you're based up in the Northeast where I am. Uh, how are you holding up? Hope hey. you're staying healthy and everything. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been doing good, playing some uh, basketball in the yard to get out of New York City and uh, enjoying the the space here. Ooh, that's a good move out of New York City at this point in time. Uh, so just give us an idea, you know what was what did this and what did this uh, judgment on Friday mean? Um, you know, try to get it into layman's terms for us. Yeah, so the judge issued a 32-page order and opinion that essentially dismissed the majority of the U.S. women's national team gender discrimination lawsuit. Uh, the trial is still scheduled for June 16, 2020, but the judge dismissed probably the biggest claim, and he dismissed the Equal Pay Act claim, um, and he dismissed parts of the Title VII claim of the Civil Rights Act for gender discrimination. So the only thing that remains is a... Title VII claim as to travel and accommodations, namely charter flights, and the personnel that's provided to the team, namely medical uh, and training staff. So essentially, the equal pay chance that everyone's been chanting and and saying, uh, that claim has been dismissed by the judge uh, before trial. So when you say dismissed, if you're charged with, like, breaking and entering and then murder one and they drop murder one, it's completely off the table, correct? There's no, there's nothing they can do, maybe appeal, but it's not part of the trial anymore. Yeah, in terms of going forward right at this point, and we can kind of talk about next steps in a little bit, but right at this point, then what's happening next is that there is a trial only on the claims remaining uh, for Title VII. And what was the basis for these, for getting rid of those parts of the trial? I mean, it's kind of what, it's kind of what we had been saying all along and that U.S. soccer has been arguing all along. Uh, the judge came out and said that basically the women's national team and the men's national team have different collective bargaining agreements. These, these collective bargaining agreements are structured differently 
namely that the women's national team have these, you know, have guaranteed compensation and they have different benefits. The men's national team have lower pay with larger performance uh, based bonuses. And the judge basically said, you bargain for this contract. You had an opportunity to get something similar to what the men have and you didn't. And so at this point, you can't go back now and take issue with the contract that you do have. Um, the judge also found that the U.S. women's national team actually earned more than the men. Um, he's in this case, he was talking about that 2015 to 2019 period, which is the, the class of uh, players that, that can be taken into account of this case. Um, I know a lot of people kind of talked about how this didn't this this numbers and the fact that the women earned more than the men didn't account for the fact that had the men won, had the men been successful, um, that would not be the case. But at the end of the day, the judge still said, um, doesn't matter. You can't compare these two collective bargaining agreements under the Equal Pay Act because they have a different structure and different preferences. And so therefore, there's no genuine issue of material fact and the claim is dismissed. No, I think, oh, go ahead, Chelsea. Let me jump in here. Um, in your sort of legal opinion, like, are you surprised at all? Because I'm kind of not. I am surprised that it happened on summary judgment, uh, to be quite honest, just because this uh, summary judgment, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but it's, you know, practice in federal court where you can get a, some things dismissed, either the entire case or parts of it, uh, depending on the issue. But it's such a high standard to meet. Um, and it's there should be no genuine issue of material fact. Now, to me, the fact that you have these expert reports kind of going back and forth and arguing different things, to me, that's a genuine issue of material fact. And, and the trier of fact, meaning the jury, um, could determine uh, opposite of what the judge determined. Um, so I, I think I'm surprised that it did happen on summary judgment. Um, not entirely surprised at the result because I, we've We've said this all along. I mean, it's a valid argument and it's hard to compare the pay structure of the two collective bargaining agreements. Right. Which is kind of where I was coming from. So thanks for, for giving a little bit more into that. Yeah. Now, part of the counter argument there is that the women negotiated the deal that they have in part because they could not get what the men have. Uh, is that legally valid or is that part of what the judge is saying? That's not true. Well, it's it's legally valid. But in terms of like what the Equal Pay Act is, you're essentially comparing wages. So in terms of the Title seven and like discrimination, like Title seven just deals with discrimination. It's a bit broader. But the Equal Pay Act literally just takes wages and compares them. And in this case, they compared total compensation. The judge said total compensation includes everything, fringe benefits, maternity leave, all that stuff. Um, so that's what the Equal Pay Act looks at. It does not necessarily look at the bargaining process. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I'll get to the appeal stuff in a little bit, but the remaining thing you said is the Title VII claim. Explain to us what that is and what is now um, appeals aside here, the best case scenario just based on that Title VII claim. Yeah, so the Title VII claim has to deal with uh, travel and accommodations, uh, charter flights, and the medical and training staff that is provided to the team. Now, what the court said is that there's enough there that uh, a trier of fact, you know, namely a jury, could decide that 
the player, the, the women's national team was discriminated against based on their gender um, for those things compared to the men's team. Um, financially, though, like, you know, we know going into this case or, or going into the summary judgment phase that the women were asking for, what, $67 million dollars. Um, and so when you take out the Equal Pay Act claim and when you take out the um, the compensation factor of the Title VII claim, going forward, you know, if they win in court, if it goes to trial and they don't settle, um, the money is just the, – the win is not nearly uh, as large as, you know, $67 million. It's not even close. So are they still in line for back wages, though? I remember – Hearing that players like Jaylene Hinkle and Lauren Barnes, who were in camps and game here and there, were part of this, would they still get back wages on the Title VII claim? No. So because the compensation aspect of that was dismissed, uh, there's no uh, back wages. There would be, you know, if there's uh, damages for discrimination on these charter flights, uh, that that has to be calculated. You know, if there's a way to calculate, uh, you know a number based off of having better training staff for the men's national team than the women's national team. Uh, that's there's good, you know, they can calculate damages that way, but in terms of back pay, uh, you know, that's kind of out of the picture now. All right. Now we heard the standard that we always hear after a legal setback, we will never give up the fight for dot, dot, dot. Right. Uh, is there an appeal process? Is there something else that can be done on the stuff that was thrown out on the summary judgment? So legally, they cannot appeal this order right now um, because in order to appeal something, it has to be a final order. And since the entire case was not dismissed, it's not a final order. The only way they can appeal right now is if they were to ask the court for permission for uh, to for an interlocutory appeal. Um, I don't anticipate that that would be granted. They can also file a motion for reconsideration. Um, that's essentially having the judge say after he just issued this 32 page opinion that he was wrong to issue it. So that's not going to happen. Um, and so then it can go to trial and they can appeal everything, you know, after the results of trial. So in terms of an appeal right now, uh, I don't know that it's uh, likely to happen. So they could only appeal this part after the other part gets taken care of. Yeah, unless they get this, the permission of the court and, and, you know, get this interlocutory appeal granted. It's a very hard thing to get done. And, and, you know, you know, I'll never say never because the law is, uh, you know, ever changing and kind of fickle and, uh, subjective at times. Um, but, um, I don't think it's likely. Does the development on Friday make it more or less likely, in your opinion, that the remaining part of the case is settled? Or goes to court? Uh, more likely that it's settled, uh, for sure, because um, I think that if it goes to trial, um, then the money just isn't there. The, the damages aren't there for the players. And I think that if they settle, there's a chance that they get a much larger sum of money. So do you think, in terms of a settlement, this pushes the power more towards the U.S. Soccer Federation or, or no? You know, quite honestly, when the news came out on Friday, I will say it was like it kind of felt like this blow. It felt like a big loss for the players. Um, after taking some time to think about it more, seeing all the responses, even seeing U.S. Soccer's uh, statement, which I think had a different tone than many of their other statements, 
I still think that even though it was a win legally for U.S. soccer, they are still so damaged in this court of public opinion that it has to affect everything that they do going forward. It doesn't matter that they likely saved, you know, millions on winning this battle, because at the end of the day, if you don't have the U.S. women's national team, at least in this point in time, you know, you don't necessarily have much for U.S. soccer. Um, and so I think that I actually think it's a little bit of a, of a best case scenario in that, you know, the players might have to come down from a, a, a number of demand of it being so high. Um, and U.S. soccer is kind of still forced from this public opinion about them to come to the table with real change uh, kind of put to the players. I've asked this before, uh, but I'll ask it again. We're talking to Kelsey Trainer, who is the Equalizer Soccer legal expert after uh, not a great day in the courtroom on Friday for the U.S. women's national team and their equal pay battle against U.S. soccer. What ultimately needs to happen to make this go away outside the courtroom? And what I mean by that is, do the men have to come in and say, hey, let's do a joint CBA kind of like Roger Federer just piped up on Twitter and opened up this whole can of worms when he said maybe this is the time where men's and women's tennis come under one umbrella. You know, does that something like that have to happen? Because I feel like the players dug their heels so deep and we will accept nothing less than the exact same pay structure down to the penny that okay. anything short of that is going to look like a defeat for them. You know, I think if they do something kind of, with the men right now, I think maybe in a year or two when the, the I guess what this current CBA is up in what, 2021. Um, I think that doing something right now with the men would be a bit more of a defeat than kind of sticking to the women being in charge of this negotiation process and being in charge of this, um, whatever the end result may be. I think it's something that the women have to do and stay with and come to the table um, and really talk to U.S. soccer. But, I mean, that also goes the opposite direction, you know, because my understanding from both sides is that there's not ever been a real conversation, uh, you know, at least in the last year, um, where both sides came to the table very seriously um, with a way to move forward. And I think that's where we're at now. And I think the the – Players have to come and U.S. soccer has to come. Um, and I, you know, maybe do something with the men down the road um, or have that be a part of this plan that the women came up with, basically. Um, I think they have to take the lead on it. Um, one other thing that I noticed in looking through the, uh, the filings a little bit was that there was no claim of damages for having to play on artificial turf in 2015. Was that specific? to friendly matches in the Hawaii game that we talked about that got canceled. That was when Rapino got hurt in, in practice uh, because that, uh, World Cup-wise, that's, that's a FIFA thing, right? That wouldn't be part of this? Yeah, I believe so. I'm not actually – I'm not quite sure, to be honest, but but I believe so. Uh, before we go to the next segment, anything that we're missing just from a straight legal perspective that, that happened Friday or that might happen going forward? I think it's important for people to kind of understand that you know, the case is still active. I, you know, I saw a lot of headlines that was like, you know, equal pay lawsuit, the women lost this and that. Um, the case is still active. They, the, the women still have uh, bargaining power. 
um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it costs a lot of money to, to litigate uh, a case. Um, and so it's not over. Um, it is a big blow, you know, but there is still chance for an appeal. Um, and there's also, I think, a stronger chance right now for a, a meaningful settlement. All right. Well, that's uh, the latest in the court case, U.S. women's national team suing U.S. soccer on equal pay claims, a bunch of those thrown out on summary judgment, but they've still got a little bit to latch on to for a trial. What's the trial date is June. I would have to think that's not likely at this point, just based on world conditions. Yeah, June 16, 2020, it's set. It was originally scheduled for May. Um, you know, quite frankly, a lot of the courts are starting to resume um, activity, but jury trials are still iffy in some states and the Central District of California, you know, they're, they're closed. They were closed to May 1st. I have to actually double check and see if there's been any new order. Um, but I don't anticipate that they're going to be, uh, having jury trials by June 16th, but that's just me. All right. We'll step out and come back, open it up, uh, make it a little bit more conversational. Got some comments on Twitter. We're talking about, uh, the latest in the legal battle between U.S. soccer and the women's national team with Chelsea Bush and Kelsey Trainer. I'm Dan Lalletta back in a moment on the Equalizer podcast. Back on the Equalizer podcast, Dan Lalletta with Chelsea Bush and Equalizer soccer legal analyst Kelsey Trainer. And a reminder, if you're not familiar with us, or even if you are and need the reminder, check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com. And for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. Doing our best to keep you flooded with content, even while there's not much happening on the field at this point. In fact, France has officially canceled their season, both the men and the women. Um, the men have not uh, declared a champion because the standings are too tight. Lyon, who wins every year on the women's side, has a three-point edge over PSG, but they still have a trip to Paris to go. That won't happen now. Um, to TBD on who gets in the Champions League, but uh, I think it'll be Lyon and PSG, which has been the usual, too, for quite a while. I think there was one year PSG fell out a few years back. But anyway, no more uh, officially no more club football in France this year for the women. Um, one more question for Kelsey, and then we'll kind of – uh, relax things a little bit here, but the last CBA was signed in 2017. And I know that if the players didn't want to sign it or didn't want a CBA, they could have allowed U.S. soccer, I believe, to just continue to operate under the terms of the previous one. Sounds to me like the judge here said, hey, you signed a deal, now you have to live with it. Would, they, did, would it have been a better tactical play to go all this time without a formal CBA and go into this trial saying we didn't sign the CBA because we're not getting what we want, and now we're here for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the CBA from it 2011 to 2016 would have been um, way more unfavorable towards the, the women than the 2017 one, uh, you know, which they signed it because there was obviously improvements. Um, so if you had the judge in the case looking at those numbers and those figures and those benefits, um, I think it probably would have been more favorable to the women the, that a ruling, you know, here might've come out differently for the players. Um, you know, I don't know what they would have been earning that entire time as well. Uh, but it's certainly something to think about, uh, strategy wise. Um, you know, can't, can't really pay Monday morning quarterback and change it, but, uh, from a legal perspective, you know, it, it's something that 
possibly could have been done and, you know, have a different result. I should have been a lawyer. <laughs> All right. Any, anytime. You can come on over to the dark side anytime. <laughs> I'll let you know about that. We'll see how the rest of this uh, summer goes. I might need some employment by then. There you go. All right. Ted Williams says on Twitter, a good friend of the podcast, Ted Williams, by the way, does, and this is directly at you, Kelsey, um, do you believe that, does Kelsey believe that although this ruling did not go their way, that the U.S. women may be poised to get much more at the next CBA negotiations and beyond that will serve future generations more than the one-time payout that current and former players might have received? That's a good question, Ted. Uh, to answer that question, Ted, uh, yes, I do. I think that, you know, we had been talking about this a little bit before, and Jane McManus uh, talked about this Scotty Pippen scenario if you look at the last dance documentary and Scottie Pippen kind of in the final year before his contract um, you know he was the second best player in the league but he was severely underpaid um, and so even we were talking about as well that his position when he negotiated that contract is kind of comparable to the women at the time um, and you know he ended up making a, a lot of money after um, his original contract ran out and so I think that the the U.S. women's national team players are in that same position where, you know, this co this collective bargaining agreement runs out in 2021. Um, and at the end of the day, they're the best soccer team in the world. Um, and they have the results to prove it. They have the sponsors coming in that want to work with them and they have the star power. Uh, so I think that in spite of this being a, a loss in court legally, I think it puts them in great position um, still going forward uh, for new CBA negotiations. And that's a really interesting comparison to Scottie Pippen because if you watch that documentary, the reason he had the contract he did was he signed a long-term guaranteed contract to take care of a very poor, very large family. He wanted to make sure that he didn't risk getting injured or anything else happening. Kind of the same with the women, right? They had to maybe take lesser deal, not maybe, they had to take lesser deals over the years because they didn't have that opportunity and they didn't want to throw away their chance to kind of latch on to the bottom of that totem pole. Exactly. And it's it's very comparable. And, and um, you know, just like Scotty's career, you know, skyrocketed. And I think, I think the numbers came back in that documentary where he ended up making more money in the long run than Michael Jordan did in the league itself. Um, and so... You know, he got paid, and I do think that the women will get paid. And, of course, Pippen also, you know, as an individual, had a very specific timeline on his career, and maybe these women won't get it, but they at least have the opportunity to pass on the, the riches down the road. Yeah. Um, Diane Hansen, in your opinion, how likely are U.S. women's national team to win on remaining issues? You know, the fact that the judge decided that a jury could – you know, basically potentially decide in favor of the players means that it could go either way. Um, so at this point, it's up to a jury. And, you know, I always say uh, if you really like betting and gambling, put it to a jury because you have no idea the outcome. Um, and so I, I can't really predict how successful they will be because at the end of the day, it'll be in front of, you know, a, a jury of their peers and, um, you know, could go either way. More from Diane, is U.S. soccer better situated to just let case proceed, lose on remaining issues, and keep status quo until new CBA, or is losing not an option for U.S. soccer, or continuing our legal fees biggest factor? 
Um, you know, it doesn't seem that U.S. soccer is like that concerned with legal fees because uh, I imagine they've spent a lot of money thus far on it. Something we probably haven't touched on either is that, you know, they've been litigating the Hope Solo case as well, which was stayed until a result occurred in this case. So, um, you know, that's another case that they've been pouring money into. Um, I think from a legal perspective and like U.S. soccer can't just take this as like, oh, we've got our law firm here and they're going to win, 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 win. Because when you win, 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 you know, sometimes that's bad business because you have this court of public opinion and people uh, you know, really disliking your legal strategies, which we've seen in this case. Um, so I don't know that it's the best legal strategy to just, you know, lose at the trial for the remaining issues and then keep it going. I think that U.S. soccer has to come in with some solid, uh, with a solid plan and, uh, you know, a real willingness to negotiate with the players. Um, and to me, that will be a total a win, you know. Uh, I don't think that a legal win is a real win in this case for U.S. soccer. You brought up Hope Solo. Does this make her individual trial, does that put her individual trial back on, or does it have to go to the end, including the Title Seven, or is that over and done with for good no matter what? You know, I have to read the stay order in her case. I believe it was originally stayed for like 60 days or 90 days, and it also might have been stayed pending an outcome in this case. And again, I'd have to also see whether outcome means an outcome on the entire case um, of the the players or if it just means on the issues that are relevant to her case. So, um, you know, I do anticipate at some point, though, that uh, that case will be, um, you know, a motion will be filed uh, by U.S. soccer to essentially enforce what is like known as like the rule of law um, of the case into the Hope Solo case. Chelsea, I feel like uh, we're leaving you out here. Sorry, in this conversation. Chelsea. No, no, you're not. You're fine. But let me ask you a question. And I think, I think Jonathan Tannenwald maybe was the first to bring this up. He said basically, you know, this was clearly not a legal position, but a public opinion position that U.S. soccer can still fix this because now they have different people in charge. And most of the people who were in charge while all these other, you know, issues were being put forward are gone. Do you think the current leadership at U.S. soccer now, even though it's not, you know, it, you know, a lot of it is interim, but do you feel like the current leadership at U.S. soccer might be ready to rectify this without lawyers and, and courtrooms being involved? Um, I think that's a hard one. I mean, I don't, besides the, the president, obviously, I don't know exactly how much of that leadership has changed. And I think you still have a lot of people there who are around, um, when some of the other decisions were made, you know, Cindy Parlogon can say all she she wants that she didn't know about the whole what was basically extremely sexist opinions that were put out by U.S. Soccer and they very quickly pulled back. Um, but she she was on that committee that was supposedly supposed to re- be reviewing and approving all the their legal decisions, right? So doesn't really jive with me. Um, I, I don't have a lot of faith in them right now. I think this is an institution that's kind of been this way for a long time in a, in a world that's been like this for a long time and these things don't just change overnight. So I'm probably going to go with, with no, but maybe I'll be wrong. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's pessimistic. Know, right? I don't know. You never know. What do we think about, obviously U.S. soccer is going to be hurt financially by the pandemic like everybody else. 
Kelsey, how do, how do you think that will <clears throat> kind of trickle down to both the men and the women's teams? Because they're not neither one is going to be playing for quite a while. Right. I mean, I think if U.S. soccer doesn't realize that, like, or 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 think, or, or they're not of the opinion that the U.S. women's national team going forward forward um, is a very sound strategic way to make money. Uh, you know, when play resumes, I think, you know, if they don't think that at this point, I don't know, you know, kind of, I don't know what to tell them. Um, but, you know, they're certainly going to be affected. And I think it's almost like they need to understand that this is an investment. You know, your women's national team is going to continue to win. Um, you know, your men's national team probably will not. Um, so I think that they need to decide going forward that, this is where the money is going to be made. We're going to lose all this money because, you know, sports as a whole are just plummeting, you know, due to coronavirus. But, you know, how, how are we going to make it back up or how are we going to stay afloat? You know, I think they need to figure out that women's soccer is that, at least, you know, for the U.S. I'll throw this one out to both of you, although I think Kelsey maybe has a better framework for answering this question. But in your regular everyday lives, do you feel like, People, and I don't mean your soccer friends who obviously know everybody on the women's national team. You think regular people are more likely to know women national team players or men's national team players? Chelsea, you want to take this one first? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think um, because I actually have a few coworkers that are women's soccer fans. But I think if you took a poll overall, I think if you looked at the current teams, more people would know women's players. I think if you looked at the whole history, more people would be able to name men's players. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to say that, you know, people that I talk to that don't follow sports at all, um if I were to ask them to name uh, a male or female player, um they could not name an, a male player. I'm going to be quite honest. I don't even know half the people who are on the men's team right now. Um <laughs> And I follow sports, not just women's sports. You know, contrary to popular belief, I follow all sports. Um, but they're just, they're not winning. They're not successful. Um, and, you know, given also the fact that the women's national team, they're, they're global superstars. They have this star power. Um, and they're marketable in so many ways right now that this, the male players are not. I mean, I, I do feel like that's the right answer, but I, I... Maybe I'm too immersed in my own women's soccer bubble to have a good sense of what the average person feels. Obviously, you know, if you're if you just follow the men's team closely and you don't watch the women, then fine, you're going to know more men and and vice versa. But I do. I mean, I feel like Megan Rapinoe is pretty well known at this point all around the sports world. Right. You've got Meg Rapinoe and then everyone knows Alex Morgan. She's like the most Instagram followers, followers of all the players. Um, and then people know Carly Lloyd. She made waves, you know, obviously being successful, but also, you know, in the football world by kicking a field goal. Um, and so, you know, they those players just have a bit more of a brand recognition as well, uh, in part because they're successful. Yeah, I feel like maybe Pulisic on the men's side. But other than that, I don't know that there's anybody that even. And that's more so, I would think. Close. I would think that's even more so because of his success in Europe and going to some of those bigger clubs, you know, um, for Stortman and now now Chelsea, which is one of the biggest men's clubs out there. Not so much because he's part of the men's national team, except for the fact that the U.S. men don't get players at those really top-tier clubs very often. 
Yeah, that's fair. And I feel like for the for the men's team, I mean, the last name in my opinion that had that global uh, recognition and that big brand was like Landon Donovan. I mean, that's how long ago? Um, just from people who don't follow along, you know. But that name, if you would ask them, they would know that name because you know, at one point, you know, he was out there. But um, yeah, I, I don't know that as many people know the the men and the women. Well, Chelsea and I were chatting the other night for whatever reason, about Joe Max Moore. And he's like sixth on the all-time list of goals scored for men with 24. And oh, we yeah. Were, we were laughing because, I mean, how many, just more than six women have 100, right? Yeah. Oh, that's so. wild. That's a wild stat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't quote me on the exact number, but it, it, it was It was low. Like yeah, it was, it was pretty low. Um. All right, Kelsey, what are your thoughts? I'll put you on the spot a little bit. We haven't had, you know, six weeks, seven weeks since we've had sports. Uh, what are your thoughts on the 2020 NWSL season? Ooh, on the spot here. You know, I just don't know that we are ever going. We're, I just don't think that this year we're going to be able to have uh, large gatherings, and I still don't think we know enough about coronavirus um, to see – you know, if people can be playing these sports together, you know, soccer, they're close to each other, you know, battling for the ball. And, um, you know, we don't know how we don't know enough about the science of it. So I just don't know that um, even without fans, I, I just don't know that we'll get a 2020 season. I uh, I have to say, I might uh, I think I'm trending there more so all the time. It's just it's it's not going to be easy to pull to pull it off. And there's travel factors in play and you know it's not that cheap to just gather people in one place and right. play at a neutral venue and then not make any money on ticket sales and you know the NBA is talking about hey well we'll put everybody in city X but they're gonna I mean that's billions of dollars in television revenue on the line NWSL doesn't have that exactly and the, and you know women's sports as a whole I think are just you know being toppled because um, they don't have the same investment. You know, the WNBA has the backing of the NBA, so I think they'll be okay. But uh, the NWSL, you know, I, I'm concerned for it just from a financial perspective. Um, you know, obviously the main concern right now is just making sure that people are safe. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how it continues in the 2020 season. Any parting shots from either one of you as we hit May? Ooh, I was going to do a it's going to be May joke, but it's already May, so. <laughs> the trial actually was May 5th was the original date, right, which is yeah. this week? Yeah, yep, would have been this week, you know. Would have been out in uh, California, you know, waiting in uh, uh, the lobby to get into a courtroom, hopefully, but uh, not so much. Chelsea, parting shots? Um, Should we preview? What? Go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I really miss sports. Even though I'm glad that we're being, I would rather be safe about it and not, you know, sports are obviously something that we can live without. And I'd rather, well, honestly, live than have be able to watch sports. But I really miss them. Did you ever envision that we could ever get to this? Like, this I is, think this is this is surreal. I think this is beyond anything we ever thought was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the last thing that the last time something like this happened was the early 1900s. Yeah, it was over a so, hundred years ago. So right. It's it's surreal. It's a it's just the world that we're living in right now. Chelsea, should we preview what we're now going to do next week that we were Ooh, supposed to do I, this time? I think we should actually. So, I think people are going to like it. it. 
So we, we meaning um, myself, Dan, and, and John Heller, and he's usually with us, although, Kelsey, if, if you would like to contribute one, you are more than welcome to. Uh, we have we have taken, the, you know, everyone always says, well, the U.S. Women's National Team, the B team, quote unquote, could be, you know, in the top 10 as well. So basically we are creating a second World Cup team, uh, 23 person, hopefully. We're still debating the exact number, but somewhere I would say probably between a, an Olympic roster to a World Cup roster worth of players, uh, not including anyone who was on the, the 2019 World Cup roster. Um, and it's a little bit more challenging than you think. So I'm very excited about it. Last I heard, you were stuck on 24, and I'm just thinking, you know, you would I not am. be good at making that phone call and saying, I'm sorry, you're not on the World Cup team. No, I'd have to call FIFA, and I'd have, like, a one-time <laughs> exception. I, it's still at 24. I will put that out there. It's it's still at 24. I actually had 25, and then I created this very um, convoluted logic to take one out. I'm still at 24, though. Not sure what I'm going to do about that. Okay. Well, we'll be anxious to hear it. I, uh, of course, I, I always wait to the last minute, so I'm not – well, I told, you, I told you why I did it, right? It was because I was I was working from home this week, working remotely, <laughs> and um, two power lines in my front yard went down. It was terrifying. So I didn't have power for a couple of hours. So I was like, well, I guess I'll knock this out. So thankfully, so I, there I have you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, Kelsey, if you want to put together a 23, if you feel like you're up for it, uh, we'll, we'll get that on next week. Sounds good. Barring any other big news drops, then we'll have to push it off even farther. All right. Well, thanks to you both. And uh, Kelsey, especially thanks for your willingness always to hop on whenever legal news drops. I know this is not the most popular legal news for the majority of our listeners, but uh, we told you, telling you how it is. Uh, but for Chelsea Bush, Kelsey Trainer, I'm Dan Lawletta. You've been listening to the Equalizer podcast. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.